Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. I'm Isaac Wheeler. I co-head the SNC Tax Group. And with me today, as always, is Davis Wang, my fellow co-head. So today we will be discussing the year-end guidance that the IRS issued. The IRS issued guidance in three areas. They met their deadlines on both the new excise tax that applies to redemptions of certain corporate stock under Section 4501. They issued guidance addressing the new corporate minimum tax. Both of those were enacted as part of the Inflation Reduction Act earlier in 2022. And they also gave us something a little unexpected, some guidance in the FERPTA area. So let's start by commending the IRS and Treasury for getting all of this out by year end. It was a lot of work, and Congress doesn't really think about how difficult this all is for Treasury to write rules in time for the laws that Congress passes to actually be operational by their effective date. And obviously, they have to deal with their own staffing shortages given the holidays. And so, you know, I think they're the well-deserved tip of the cap to IRS and Treasury for getting out the guidance, particularly on the corporate minimum tax and the excise tax. And for those who are following at home, notice 2023-7 is the notice that sets forth the guidance and intention to issue regulations under the corporate minimum tax. And for 4501, it's notice 2023-2. So now that we've gotten the effusive praise out of the way, I'd like to group Davis our reactions, and we can differ here in which buckets, but I'd like to group them into three. And let's go with the good, the bad, and the ugly. I went through the list, and this is obviously all at a high level. I think that's where we're aiming to discuss each of these. But I went through the list, and I've got one good two bad and one ugly, and then one that I'm sort of on the fence about whether it's bad or ugly. But let's start with the good. And that has to do with the application of the buyback tax to SPACs. And I think it'd be helpful to give a quick overview of Section 4501 and some of the highlights of the notice. Davis, can I turn it over to you for that? Sure. Thank you, Isaac. So Section 4501 is what people commonly refer to as the 1% buyback tax. And the tax is supposed to apply to corporate stock buybacks. I think the policy motivation being that corporations should use the excess cash to reinvest in the corporation and generate higher returns to the economy and to employees and other stakeholders rather than simply to buybacks stock, which tends to increase the compensation to executives and, and perhaps shareholders. One doesn't have to agree necessarily with that characterization of what stock buybacks do, but that seems to be the motivation behind this particular provision in the statute. However, the sweep of the statute is certainly broader than the advertising that it's supposed to apply to corporate buybacks. And that is mainly because the statute applies a definition of buyback that references Section 317, which includes a lot of 
common transactions that are really not what people would think about in the non-tax land as buybacks. So one of the questions that people had was whether corporate liquidations to shareholders would be a buyback. I don't think people commonly think of it that way, but it could in fact be read that way from a technical reading of the statute. And the good news that Isaac was referring to earlier is the non-application under these proposed rules of the buyback tax to corporate liquidations. For many SPACs, which after the last triumphant wave of activity in the last few years that are liquidating, this is very good news indeed. Although I think the jury is out on how this could apply in some particular fact situations, I think you know, many law firms and practitioners disagree on some of the details. So that's the buyback tax on liquidations. Yeah. So, so Davis, before you go into, into the other components of the notice, I just want to try to articulate a, a policy theory for the excise tax along the lines of the one that you identified. And that's because if the policy is simply raising revenue, then it's hard to determine whether any of these are good or bad from a policy standpoint. If we can articulate one, then at least we have a framework for debating this question, whether or not we in fact agree with it. And I want to be clear that I don't necessarily agree with it. But I think the policy argument would be that there is a benefit that corporations receive from doing buybacks. We know that because corporations continue to do them and they view it as a very attractive use of cash. Whether or not that in fact increases the value of what's in the corporation or the shares, sort of the market tells us it must or the corporations must think it does because they continue to do it. And that that value materializes at the time of the buyback, at the time the number of outstanding shares is reduced. And so that is an appropriate time to extract value from the corporation. So if that's our framework, Maybe, Davis, you could talk a little bit about what I would put in the bad category, which is the application of the tax to preferred shares. Right. So preferred shares are often financial instruments that corporations issue to finance various activities of the corporation. From a financial and commercial perspective, they act very much like debt, but they occupy a lower tier on the capital structure. And for that reason, and other reasons, the tax law treats preferred stock differently from debt. The payments on the preferred stock are usually not deductible. And many of these instruments also carry mandatory redemption features, just like debt. However, this redemption is treated as a buyback under the proposed rules. And so would be attracting that 1% buyback tax. I'm not sure how intentional or intended that result would be by the Congress that enacted this statute, but there it is. And I think many people had hoped that the IRS would see its way around to exempting preferred stock, certainly street preferred stock, not convertible preferred stock, from this particular tax. Yeah, I think the statute even alludes to the fact that the tax may not apply to preferred. 
And so under the regulation section in 4501F, the secretary is authorized to prescribe regulations as necessary or appropriate to carry out, prevent the avoidance of, and the purposes of the section. And it specifically addresses special classes of stock and preferred stock. So I think there was a lot of hope that preferred stock would be excluded because it really doesn't give you any of the benefit, the purported EPS benefit with respect to straight preferred that you have with common. So that was a little bit of a weird one. And I, I put it in the bad category. I certainly think that's a little bit of a weird one, right? Because one can have other questions or theories about the reach of the tax. But even if, for example, the focus were on the executives who are trying to buy back stock and quote unquote, juice up the returns and give them higher compensation, typically a corporation or an executive cannot achieve these objectives by buying back preferred stock, especially if the preferred stock is mandatorily redeemable. Yeah, agreed. All right, I think we've got one more on the buyback notice, and that's the one that I was on the fence about bad versus ugly. Davis, you want to talk us through the funding rule? I think I would call it the ugly before we get to that, I, I would just mention two other things about the buyback tax guidance. The IRS confirmed that boot in reorganizations, and that is the cash that is often paid in reorganizations, and in split offs is subject to the excise tax. I think that part is not that surprising. I think one can put in the category its exemption of split offs in general from the uh, buyback tax. I think that's helpful. It depends on, again, where one's baseline is, right? And to the ugly part, I think it's the surprising rule in the notice that repurchases of a foreign parent stock that is funded directly or indirectly by a related domestic subsidiary could be subject to the excise tax. I don't think anyone was expecting that because the tax is very much applicable to publicly traded U.S. corporations. So I think it would require quite an extension, Isaac, of the rationale that you were describing to reach domestic subsidiaries of foreign parent corporations. The domestic subsidiaries in these cases are not publicly traded at all. Yeah, yeah, you're convincing me that it's in the ugly camp. You know, I think that the IRS and Treasury, I think, can get tripped up when they start applying a tracing or a funding rule. I'm sympathetic in certain circumstances where they adopt a rule and, you know, they might see a potential for a workaround on that rule if, you know, an affiliate borrows and lends to another affiliate or something of the sort. But I think very quickly it becomes almost impossible to apply that rule in practice because all of these publicly traded affiliated groups are complicated structures that are driven generally not at all by tax. And so having a singular finance subsidiary that finances the activities of the group, having cash sweep provisions where cash of subsidiaries is swept up to a street-facing entity or the entity that is the primary borrower in the group. All of these things, you know, the mechanics of them happen, and it's way more complicated than 
I borrowed 100X in this subsidiary and it funded this 100X activity in this other affiliate. And so I really think that the funding rule and it's there's similar funding rules or, or sort of tracing concepts. They tried it in 385 and they've tried it in 987. It's a misunderstanding of what taxpayers are really doing as a matter of practice. It comes from a place where you believe that all taxpayers are actively scheming to game the system. I think it's much more sanguine than that in terms of most taxpayers' actual funding activities. I think you're exactly right. I think there's a misunderstanding or at least a misappreciation of the complexity of these organizations. And your reference to Section 385, I think, is exactly what makes me think that it's terrifyingly ugly. And I think there is a per se funding rule that if the acquisition or repurchase occurs within two years of the so-called funding transaction, then it is treated as being subject to the tax. I think it will be very difficult to implement and for, for taxpayers if this is implemented to comply. Uh, okay, let's stick with the ugly, Davis, and go on to the the FERPTA guidance that was proposed. So the background here is that there is an exemption from U.S. real property holding company status if a REIT is domestically controlled. And so just to unpack that a little bit more and not to go too deep into the background here, non-U.S. persons generally not taxed when they sell corporate stock. Exception to that rule is if they sell stock in what is called a U.S. real property holding corporation, the USRPHC. And that's because non-U.S. persons are taxed on the sale of U.S. real estate. And so USRPHC, whose assets are primarily U.S. real estate, generally, I'm, I'm oversimplifying here. And then the exception to the exception is that if you are a REIT and you are more than 50% owned by U.S. persons, and therefore domestically controlled, the sale of that domestically controlled REIT stock by a non-U.S. person is not subject to FERPTA and therefore not subject to U.S. tax. So there had been questions about how you determine domestic control, and the language in the statute just refers to direct or indirect ownership. And so there were questions about, well, what if the U.S. person is a partnership? And do you look through the partnership? And the guidance that the IRS issued said that, yes, you do look through a U.S. partnership. That's appropriate because otherwise you could have non-U.S. persons just form a U.S. partnership. The partnership itself is not subject to tax. And now you could have 100% effectively owned non-U.S. owned REIT and it would avoid tax. But they didn't stop there because the guidance also said that in certain circumstances, we're going to look through a U.S. corporation. Now, the rules that they proposed would look through a U.S. corporation if the U.S. corporation is more than 25% non-U.S. owned. And this caught me totally cold because, first of all, the IRS had issued a PLR, and granted PLRs are not to be relied on other than by the taxpayer to whom they're issued. 
But the IRS had issued a POR in 2009 that essentially stated that you don't look through domestic corps. And I think even prior to the POR, I think most people would have applied that rule that way because it is very rare in tax law to look through domestic corps. And particularly here, where if the domestic corp owns stock of the REIT, then the domestic corp itself will be taxed when it sells the REIT stock. So it, it doesn't seem exactly. like... Exactly. A- I was hoping that you would get to that, Isaac, right? That it, it seems that there, there must be some consideration to the opaque and non-passive nature of a, a domestic C-corp that owns it and therefore is subject to tax. And so some recognition that using a REIT in that context would not really allow someone to escape the U.S. tax net. Now that we look through a U.S. corporation as well, that acknowledgement seems to be lost. And it's unclear to me what policy purpose is really being served. Yeah, uh, with you 100%. And also, the 25% seems totally out of left field, too. Why 25%? Why not 50%? Somebody wants to suggest that you have a related party relationship, or it's not really what it purports to be because it's owned by somebody else. We see 80%, we see 50%. 25%, again, it's just the policy behind the rule generally doesn't seem very well thought out. And the reference to 25% might as well be plucked from thin air. So this one was a surprise. It didn't seem like there was any need for this guidance. And I'm very, very hopeful, although not necessarily optimistic, that the IRS takes the opportunity to rethink this one before any final regs are issued. Davis, we're running out of time here. And I know we barely touched on other than mentioning at the intro, the corporate minimum tax. I think we should maybe save that one for another podcast. I will say that in general, uh, maybe I was unfair in only characterizing one good. I thought the thought the corporate minimum tax at least showed that IRS and Treasury are wrestling with the right issues, which is generally what are the circumstances where a specific tax result has been granted by Congress in the reorg context, in the depreciation context, is the minimum tax where that there isn't a book or a gap analogy to that treatment, is the minimum tax intending to tax those transactions. I think that's primarily what the corporate minimum tax guidance is wrestling with, and they'll continue to wrestle with it. But just before we end, Davis, anything more on the corporate minimum tax guidance? I think it's an unmitigated good in this category that at least they have expressly proposed to exempt split-offs from the corporate minimum tax and also exempt at least some of the cancellation of debt income from the corporate minimum tax. But I agree, probably the most important thing is that everyone is still trying to wrestle with what this tax means and how it can be implemented in reality. Thank you for listening to SNC's Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.solcrom.com. Take care, everyone.